I shouldn't have to introduce Rob Johnson, but I am introducing Rob Johnson, who, as you probably know, is the director of the Chasing Courage War Programme, um, and um, is therefore an entirely familiar face. Uh, Rob's uh, most recent book is on the Afghan way of war, um, and of course his expertise particularly in Central Asia um, and in as other aspects of British overseas policy, I think is probably well known to you. Uh, his focus today is not past but future, um, and his title is Planning Future War. Yes. Uh, and the graph, uh, the mathematical behind it, nothing to do with me. Um, well, thank you very much, Hugh. This was not my idea. I shouldn't really be here. Um, the speaker we had in mind, unfortunately, 10 days ago, uh, told us that he was unable to come. And as happens with the Change of Character War Programme, because we are quite a thin organisation in terms of depth, uh, it fell upon me to have to, uh, to convey to you some work that's been going on at the moment. And I am on difficult terrain, not least because uh, I trained as an historian. And uh, one thing you learn uh, very quickly as an undergraduate in the story and onwards is that you don't tinker with the future. You don't attempt to make any kind of positivist judgments about the future because you're going to lose your reputation pretty quickly. So this is me sticking my neck out, brass-necked uh, approach, um, to try and um, assess and understand uh, not, only, not just the trends that people are very fond of to talk about, but what the caveats and obstacles and problems are with even beginning to assess this particular subject. And let me start, if I may, with, with sort of three um, vignettes, because I think they illustrate uh, the problem, um, for me, very um, dramatically. The first is under the heading, essentially, terrorism. Um, we have all been very familiar, uh, not only with the imagery, but also the detail of 9-11, of Bali, of Madrid, uh, with attacks on, on transport infrastructures, uh, and finance. And then there's a sort of Mumbai Westgate form of terrorism, um, which seems to uh, threaten to become ever more frequent. Um, you only look at what happened in Sharm Sheikh, for example, even three years ago to know that there appears to be something of a pattern emerging there of swarm attacks by irregulars who essentially um, already resign themselves to their own destruction uh, and the mass destruction essentially of others. That's one vignette. Then, if I can put another uh, mental image in your mind, as uh, advocated by the technologists, uh, the idea that, for example, in Japan and in the United States at the moment, uh, there is research going on into cloaking devices, almost literally cloaking devices, creating technology that can project forwards, rather like a data projector, um, hundreds of small um, cameras, which will project forward an image of what is on the back uh, of a vehicle or a person. So from a distance, um, it looks as if that person is not even there at all, uh, and now developing a system where that could be applied to a main battle tank. So at least visually, other than the heat signature, one would not actually be able to see the object that, you, uh, that uh, you're looking towards. There's also some other technology. Uh, body enhancement is being investigated at the moment by organisations like Dynacorp, who want to find out, are there ways of enhancing the human being, human physiology, in such a way that we could in enhance their endurance, uh, possibly even replace body parts that have been blown away by IEDs, and so on. And even alongside that, exoskeletons. How can we create a structure around the human frame to give it greater strength and agility uh, than it has at the moment? I think another one that we're all familiar with is, um, is on the technology heading is uh, space technology. People are 
I know that uh, Virgin, as a, as a group, a corporation, are on the verge of launching uh, a reusable uh, airframe that will be able to go into the uh, upper atmosphere on the edge of space. And ultimately, if we can develop the technology in the right way, we'll be able to skip the upper atmosphere and make journey times from London to Beijing in the future, perhaps under two hours. Extraordinary phenomenon with all sorts of military potential. But there's also the absurdity of technology, and I can't, uh, I'm very tempted to mention to you um, a piece of technology is being developed in the United States. It's called DOG. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It is a large mechanical horse-like object, but without a head. Um, it's driven by an engine which is extraordinarily loud, like a, a, a giant lawnmower. It can carry lots of water and ammunition behind a small unit as it approaches an urban space as it goes into that you know, fighting in a built-up area for which you need a great deal of ammunition and water normally and medical uh, equipment. Um, I did sort of impertinently point out to people that the Taliban already have one of these pieces of technology. It's an American friend of mine. He was astonished and said, I don't believe him, uh, Afghans will ever have anything approaching this degree of expertise. I said, yes, it's called a mule. It eats grass, it's silent, and it goes up mountains. There's also, of course, the other theme, the, vignette, the final vignette I want to put in your mind uh, before we get on away with this, which is um, one of traditional civil wars. Um, as we turn on our televisions uh, in the evening, every evening at the moment, one is filled with images of Syria, but of course we've also been through a, a decade of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, I and mean, I think we're all very familiar, uh, things that we're familiar, frankly, to Thucydides, of the, um, the unchanging nature of war, which we're all very familiar on this program. Um, it does seem, doesn't it, that perhaps in, as we go into the future, um, the means and the ways are going to change significantly, uh, whereas the ends or the nature will somehow remain very familiar, very much the same. So what am I going to try and do in the time, the half an hour or so, or 40 minutes or so that I've got? Well, I'll try to assess the planning of future war, um, hopefully drawing attention to some of these caveats and the obstacles and problems that we face. And I've essentially got, there are three assertions I want to look at, really. Um, this, is, this is how an historian can be infected with social science here. You know, I'm, I'm no longer talking about an historical narrative and analysis. I'm now talking about assertions. It's something, something you've, you've done to me. The first assertion is, about, um, is that prediction is inherently problematic. Um, but history can be a very useful guide in asking the right questions uh, and in giving us some useful experience on which we can then springboard our own analyses of the present and the future. I think my second assertion really is that uh, the present is also a guide in the same way, um, but we still face this problem of what to select from the present or the, even the recent past. And I think one of the difficulties we've got, which is something that David Cullen has recently drawn attention to, the difficult, difficulty of conceiving of an era of accelerating change. How do we manage to understand that from the present? And the third assertion is that um, the trends of war appear to be identifiable. At least some of them, in part, are identifiable. And it might be worth us just having a look at some of those and testing those out. And I should say, this, is, this you know, discussion, there isn't a PowerPoint presentation. And even as I came upstairs, someone said to me, can I have your PowerPoint slide pack from today, please? Yes, he was from North America. Um, all I would say about that is that this is in the spirit of um, flying a kite. I, I, I genuinely, I know speakers often say this when they haven't prepared properly, uh, but I actually believe that genuinely we can exchange uh, a few ideas here and test out some thoughts. So let's start straight away, because I, what I won't have time, and I will not do today, is talk about the implications uh, for 
defence in terms of organisation, decision making, and structure. I think that really is such a huge subject. It would, uh, but if we get to it, question and answer. If that's what you want to discuss, by all means, let's do so in terms of implications. But I think we should only really get to this first three assertions today. Let's look at assertion one. Predicting the future is problematic, but history is a sort of guide. Let's take a look at that. Um, I think it would be true for us to say that changes are very hard to identify uh, at the time, the, the period of history you're in. You're in the flux of history. Uh, it's very hard to, to pick things out. And often when contemporaries in the past, when they were looking at their own situation, trying to imagine the future, they uh, always would select um, the, uh, the themes of what they thought about the future based on their own contemporary values and beliefs. And that's perhaps not surprising, is it? So they could be quite narrow. They could be their own norms that they thought would be important. Um, but we do know uh, that we could look at some of those things. We try not to be selective. We could look back at the past and say, well, let's look at, we now know what happened. We can take a broader view. We could also look at some enduring principles of strategy or international relations in the past and say, look at how our historical forebears would invoke certain rules of the game uh, of international relations. For example, if you go back to the 19th century, many of the people in the mid-19th century predicting what it would be like by 1900 were saying there would need to be a balance of power between the great powers. That was the concept of international relations of the mid-19th century. So not surprisingly, they made use of it. Of course, they had no idea what was coming. They didn't know that Mearsheimer was going to come along, for example, and have realists talking about power maximisation or security maximisation. That was all going to come later. So we should bear that in mind. Of clearly, the past was subject to variable conditions and changes in application technology and dynamics of conflict. All of those made a difference to, to any accuracy that uh, the people in the past could try and achieve. And yet, what's so surprising for me is that there were so many bold assertions made in the past, and indeed as they're being made in the present, uh, about the future. Bold assertions that are usually extraordinarily dystopian. We, you know, we're, we're facing a world that's going down the tubes. Uh, this Hobbesian world, we're told, is characterised, will be characterised by multipolarity. And why is that fearful? Because it, it implies the erosion of Western hegemony. Uh, increasing legal constraints, uh, which will affect operational efficiency. Military commanders unable to make decisions because they'll be constrained by lawyers. Population growth at an exponential scale causing famine, war and disease. You can almost hear the four horsemen of the apocalypse galloping over the horizon towards us. Competition for resources leading to war. Fear of the rise of military power of near rivals. In the present day, people fear the, ch the rise of Chinese military power. You may be flattered to hear that, colonels. Um, uh, and also, um, another one that's uh, off-related, you know, resources running out. In our own age, it's about oil and gas running out um, and people talking about climate change. Strange enough, if you go back historically and look at people's uh, projections of future war, many of those themes, conceptually, were also true. People were afraid of the future because of its fundamental uncertainty. And if you look at some of the kind of writers we've had over the last few decades... Robert Kaplan, Francis Fukuyama, Samuel Huntington, now David Cullen is adding himself to this list. Uh, they've all had a pretty bleak view of, of many aspects of the future. Martin van Creveld uh, talks about the failure of state power being inevitable. Um, failed states are going to be a feature of the future we've been discussing and talking about predicting now for decades, probably prompted in, in most recent years by Rupert Smith's 
um, you know, projections about war amongst the people because of state failure. So that's what we've got. But in the past, prediction was as contradictory as it is today because one of the interesting contradictions we're now getting is if you go to Uppsala University and look at their war and peace project, uh, one of the things they'll tell you is that with great confidence, they look at the drivers that cause war, they say, and we've, we have predicted, they said, the next 50 years, is, there's going to be a decline in both major and minor war. And this has been picked up, of course, famously by Steve Pinker, Andrew Mack, Horvath Hegre in Norway, all of them pointing to the metrics which suggest there'll be less war by 2050 and certainly by the end of the century. They've looked, the drivers that they calculate, particularly if, you, if you're interested to know, are um, population growth, but particularly the youth bulge, you know, unemployed young men getting themselves engaged in warfare. The history of conflict, in other words, if a state or a region has had conflict in the recent past, the driver factor is that they are more, the, the suggestion is that they are more likely to have war in the near future. Um, so if you were to look at years that a country has been at peace, it is more likely to remain at peace. This is the general thesis that they've put forward. State creation normally is governed by great violence, they assume, and state consolidation is normally um, a period of peace, they argue. I, I would dispute that as an historian, personally. And also they look at poverty, um, and they suggest that poverty is a driver of conflict. I, again, I, I would think that requires some qualification, personally. It seems to me that, again, historically, it's disparities of wealth and relative deprivation compared with available resources that seems to you know, be important. Why is it, I wonder to myself, why these great, uh, eminent writers who seem to attract a great deal of attention, particularly in the United States, leave out these contradictions? Is it sensationalism? Is it a desire to sell books? What is, what is really going on? And I say, well, I went back to have a look at the past and find the same sorts of contradictions exist in the past when people try to imagine the future. It's clear that contemporaries held on to their values. The forces and equipment tend to last a lot longer than perhaps they should have done because of some special value they, they put upon them. And, and you'll know all now I'm talking about cavalry, for example. Cavalry, as a military force, survived a lot longer than perhaps it should have done because of its, uh, the investment of value about its mobility, shock effect, um, its flexibility, its ability to operate in depth, and so on. So they could find reasons why that should be. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that techniques become encultured, technologies sometimes become encultured as well, and therefore they're difficult to shift. They also, of course, prefer particular assumptions in the past because it's what they value the most. Um, armies, for example, should be set up in a particular fashion. That's how they, they think they conceive an army as having a particular structure and format and way of behaving, and it's hard to move that, um, them out of that. Uh, unpalatable truths can be downplayed, but equally there can be sensationalism. Uh, one of my favourite um, things at hobbies, for example, when I, I'm exhausted and I need to read something that entertain me, uh, entertains me, is to look at invasion scare literature of the late 19th century. It is extraordinarily hilarious and entertaining. And then if you, look, you combine that with German spy literature, i.e. British literature about German spies before the First World War, and you find yourself in fits of laughter and you have a very entertaining Christmas. Um, invasion scare literature, and, and of course, you know, what, what grew out of that was science fiction literature, um, of, you know, is, is absolutely extraordinary. Well, I have seen some, very, um, um, some recent uh, work done in the United States now suggesting that science fiction grew out of the Enlightenment literature rather than actually out of... Uh, invasion scare work, but I, I, I remain there to be, I'm open-minded about that. If you look at H.G. Wells, for example, 
And in fact, all science fiction, of course, you realise they're not really talking about the future at all. They're talking about anxieties of the present. Uh, and the invasion uh, uh, of Martians in War of the Worlds has actually got nothing to do with outer space at all. It's all expressing fears of the European powers invading the United Kingdom or, or somehow overnight uh, circumventing the power of the Royal Navy. Now, it's very easy, isn't it, to condemn absurdity uh, in the past. If you look at historical figures who condemned absurd projects, um, I haven't got the image here. Perhaps I should have brought the, the PowerPoint presentation, but I know that's not really the done thing. Um, there is an amazing set of engravings produced in the, in the late 1790s in Britain uh, that imagined French invasion barges coming to England. And these are uh, huge rafts driven by windmills bristling with cannon. Uh, and, of course, by the time you get to the 1820s, people were already looking back at the 1790s and saying, this was absurd. You know, how, how absurd? Well, what is a military hovercraft if it isn't a raft driven by windmills bristling with cannon? Um, equally, in the early 1800s, they, they were fearful in Britain about hot air balloons, um, you know, obviously from the early experiments of the 1790s, coming over to England and dropping bombs out of hot air balloons. Well, again, I would say, well, what is a Zeppelin? in 1915, if it isn't a hot air balloon dropping bombs. So uh, some of these things were, of course, eventually realised. At the time, they were dismissed as absurd, as rantings of lunatics, um, and became apparently self-evident later on. The difficulty we have, of course, is rather like the people in the past, is assessing trends and deciding you know, which ones do we regard as having any legs and which um, pieces of technology or which techniques appear to be utterly absurd and have no real purchase at all. And we're not helped by the fact that the sheer variety of conflicts that we are studying um, don't make that easy. I mean, urban terrorism at one end through to the potential for a nuclear exchange at the other. The, the difficulty I have with a lot of work that's being produced right now is the assumption is that all wars in the future will look a lot like the ones we're in now. So a lot of people are talking about conflicts in the future will essentially be states waging war against irregular insurgent forces. And that's, you know, again, not surprising that we come to those sorts of conclusions. But I think we should go well beyond that. Let me give an example of what I mean. And, uh, you know, forgive me, there may be people in the room who were the sort of authors or architects or contributors to this particular document I can refer to, but I'm going to be fairly critical of this, because we can be now, because it's a past piece of work. It was the United Kingdom Future Character of Conflict document, um, which is around 2009 you know, and before, uh, in other words, a document produced while the conflict in Afghanistan was ongoing as it is today. It was driven uh, not just, of course, by this background of what was going on in Afghanistan, but also, I have to say, um, by personality politics. Individuals involved in the scheme uh, wanted to put themselves forward. There was also um, some departmental inputs by departments eager to um, show that they were worthy. Uh, I won't name them. And there are also some compromises made, not least on the priorities the document identified. Now, I don't say these things just to sort of point the finger at colleagues and say, you know, how absurd and perhaps they should have done it better. But I think we should be aware that in the formulation of all documentation of that type, that is normal. Um, documents of doctrine and so on are intensely political, it seems to me. Uh, and if we're going to imagine the future, I think we all have to be just conscious of the fact that that's going to happen. There's going to be contemporary pressure on the documentation itself. Let me go further. One of the assumptions in the future character of conflict document was that warfare would become more, and the emphasis on the word more, congested, 
cluttered, constrained. Um, now, uh, it seems you know, not in doubt, if you're looking at some of the conflicts going on in the recent experience of Iraq for Western forces, that conflict was more congested, cluttered, <coughs> constrained. And if you look at um, you know, unmanned aerial vehicle sort of operations, one would say, well, actually, I don't think they've been terribly constrained. If you look at the fact that um, there have been missile strikes from UAVs in Yemen or Pakistan outside of operational areas, that doesn't look very constrained. And I don't think, um, you know, we can say that every battle space uh, in Afghanistan has been congested or cluttered. In fact, one of the surprising things about the dash of southern Afghanistan is it's so open. I mean, there's very little to see. Uh, it's the opposite of congested or cluttered. And I think the, the, other, the other words that were used to describe future will be they should be more connected and more contested. Well, all battlefields and battle spaces are connected, and all of them are contested. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, the, the idea, if it's not contested, it's not a war. So I, I, I was surprised, essentially, what was going on there. What this really expresses, this document, is the legitimacy and utility and value of force. In other words, it's not really about future character of conflict at all, it's about something else. And it's also about the value of allies at a time when there was a great deal of criticism of what United Kingdom forces were doing and who they were working with. The criticism, to remind you, was over Iraq that the United Kingdom was too closely aligned to the policy of George W. Bush and was not making independent judgments about its own strategic and national interests. Now, there are lots of things in this document which I, again, briefly want to refer to because they, are, they have some influence on what we do next. Um, there's a great deal of emphasis on decision. Um, you know, no surprise that perhaps influenced by our culture of understanding and obeying Clausewitzian sort of concepts, that um, there was this emphasis on getting decision. But it also, for me, expresses this document, fear, fear of time particularly, fear that time would run out because there's too little strategic patience amongst governments and that um, the public, the British public too, quickly exhaust their uh, reservoir of tolerance of, of war uh, and that therefore if you can get decision, if you can have a decisive campaign, you avoid this problem, this fear of time. Of course, what it ignores is that you can achieve effects strategically, militarily, politically by a slow burn, by a more protracted policy. Um, I mean, an erosion of your adversary by, by these means is, is one way. Um, people are constantly saying to me about the campaign in Afghanistan that actually hasn't gone very well because uh, there's this hackneyed expression about the, you know, we've got all the watches and they've got all the time. I, I totally disagree. If you're involved in stabilisation and nation building, your horizon is 30 years out. So you need time. It's not, it's not a, a shortage of time. That's the problem. Uh, there's no emphasis or very little emphasis in this document on deception, soft effects and, and other alternative ways. It's very much about the use of force. Um, it assumes that decision will always happen on the ground, which I think is a very interesting you know, land-based sort of way of approaching a problem. Ignoring, for example, um, the, uh, the, uh, you know, what, what comes out of atomic warfare in 1945 is that dropping two atomic bombs essentially does make a decision for Japan. Um, it's not about a land invasion at all. There's a lot of emphasis on threats. They're almost exclusively in the document about extremist non-state irregulars. But there is a passing reference to state failure and what that might mean. I found that curious in light of the fact that even before the document was written in the United Kingdom, terrorism was coming from within. The 7-7 bombings, 2005, um, were uh, from homegrown terrorists. And the, indeed, the, only this week there were newspaper warnings that... Um, 
jihadists, British jihadists now currently in Syria, are being encouraged to come back to the United Kingdom to wage a war against an infidel government uh, in the United Kingdom. Homegrown terrorism didn't really appear in this document. There's also a problem of conflation. There's a blurring of warfare uh, between, you know, anything that was conventional and anything that's irregular, and this word hybrid and chaotic is used. I think this was just obfuscation uh, of essentially what was an expression of uncertainty. People didn't know what future wars going to look like, so simply call it chaotic, call it hybrid, and you can't define it. It's too nebulous, and therefore that, that's your expression of uncertainty. It ignores, uh, lots of things are missing in the document. Um, internal security, border integrity against a Mumbai-style attack. Nothing about cyber or bio-warfare. Nothing about blockades, selected targeting, dispersed battle spaces, or indeed opportunities, like the opportunities afforded by social media, which David Cookhullen has most recently drawn attention to, um, and uh, we can talk about that another time if you like. Most of all, the document expresses fear. Fear of weaker, less civilised enemies, proxies, hidden enemy forces with good equipment that break uh, the law of armed conflict. Almost seemingly we're powerless against it. There's a fear of media, largely because of the bad press over the beginning of the Iraq campaign and the uncontrollable, wild nature of the world's media, the 24-hour rolling news. There's also a fear of the future. By 2029, the document states, the United Kingdom will no longer have the ability to overmatch or even parity over near rivals and middle-sized powers. The solutions the document proposes, very again, very vague reference to mobilising more levers of national power. Sort of like a sort of total war kind of uh, hint, I suppose. When actually, probably, more precise, more calibrated responses might be better. Why was all this expressed? As I say, I think this has got a lot to do with uh, a Clausewitzian sort of reading going on here, cultured sort of view, um, if you want, and, and very specific issues in the context of when that document was written. Now, it's true to say um, prediction is necessary. Uh, policymakers, practitioners have expensive equipment programmes, long-term training programmes to think about, and they've got to get it roughly right because the costs and efficiencies are so demanding on them. But the changing character of war is always conditional in its context, and it evolves. Things evolve in, in a conflict, but also we uh, all know that there can be these sheer events where you can get a breakthrough technology or breakthrough technique that will shift pretty quickly, pretty dramatically, what's going on. We've got into the habit of calling them revolutions in military affairs in, in recent decades, but I think that you can go back in history and find these sorts of events pretty readily, um, and uh, we should be aware that they, they happen. We also might observe, in terms of this need for longer-term planning and accurate planning, that business links to defence, not just in the United Kingdom, but in, in the whole world, and particularly the Western world, business links to defence are very strong. Um, procurement programmes are expensive. There needs to be a good sort of sense of understanding between both sides. But what I do object to, and people who know me well here will know that I do object to this, this sort of business jargon, business language, which has crept in because of this industrial connection. Um, and I'll, you know, you're familiar with competitive strategies, network-centric warfare, full-spectrum dominance, effects-based operations, and upstream engagement as just a handful of examples, most of which are vacuous and sometimes intrinsically contradictory. Where did that leave us? Let's, leave, let's go to assertion number two. Let's leave the past for a moment and go to assertion two. And that is that war in the present can indicate trends 
but it's difficult to conceive of accelerating change. Let's start with China. The overwhelming success of Chinese manufacturing and um, uh, capital ventures has allowed China to develop its export economy and engage in rapid urbanisation. The assumption that falls out of that is that the world will be more multipolar. Uh, and you often hear this um, expressed, sometimes not always on paper, but I you know, hear conversations with particularly American colleagues who express some concern, a little rising anxiety, about this great takeoff of China. Ironic, of course, because from the 1950s, the United States wanted China to join the rest of the world in the capitalist economy. But I would argue that the American unipolar moment after 1990 was never absolute and was pretty short-lived, even when it was um, there at all. And I think it's also, we need to bear in mind, that the rise of the People's Republic of China, uh, economically speaking, does not automatically mean the relative economic decline of the West, even though it's expressed that way. Let me give you some idea. Um, two, two things in particular which I, you know, I would point to, to to make us think about. One is that uh, the vast uh, population of China who live at a standard of living which is below Western standards um, could potentially, with the rising price of food over the next 40 years, arrest the further development of China quite significantly. And Chinese economists are very exercised by the idea that that might happen. And they'd want to keep the momentum up. It's also true that most of the dot-com growth, most of the uh, IT world growth, is occurring in the Western world at the moment, not in China. And that if we're to believe uh, McKinsey's statistics on this, their projection is that currently global GDP is about $50 trillion. It's going to increase by 2050 to $150 trillion of global GDP. Where is most of that wealth going to go? A significant proportion will go to this huge takeoff in China, but the majority of that money will remain in the West. So these people are saying the rise of China threatens the de automatic decline of the West in relative terms. I'm afraid don't seem to agree with some of the statistics being put forward by economists. None of this is absolute, of course. Another one that always amuses me is that people talk about an ageing population as being a burden on the globe, and particularly the Western world is going to suffer the most from its ageing population. Well, the solution to me is very simple. Do you make sure you teach everyone over the age of 60 how to do finance based on IT systems? Does that not make sense to you? Uh, because, of course, they can then be at home making an enormous sum of money through the dot-com kind of phenomenon, rather than actually necessarily going to workplace on a nine-to-five basis. We have, in other words, an industrial manufacturing mentality about how we use our workforces, and we write off people over the age of 60 as if somehow they're no longer productive. That may not be the case, actually. An ageing population, with all this experience, uh, may be much more valuable to us than we think. <coughs> there is, of course, uh, a reason why there's an, uh, anxiety about China. This is rising military potential. I can't remember how many aircraft carriers are being launched by China in the next 12 months, but it's significant, I think. Um, and there, there is enormous ambiguity over um, China's long-term plans because it creates suspicion uh, and there is a regular prediction of a collision, which you could almost argue has some sort of self-fulfilling kind of prophecy to it. Uh, and uh, I'm conscious that Hugh is sitting in front of me here as you know, the phenomenon of the First World War studies, but uh, at least my understanding of this is that um, from, you know, uh, my old tutor when I was an undergraduate, Volker Burkhan, used to tell me that actually 
the more you talk about something as inevitable, there's a collision between two countries, the more likely it seems to happen because you're reinforcing misunderstanding. It seems to me that the priority in terms of security for the People's Republic of China in the next 30 to 40 years will be domestic security and will potentially be border integrity, a not unreasonable assumption if you imagine that, that China has had to defend its borders vigorously in 1951, 1960, 1962, and in 1979, all within the recent past. And China is now a significant contributor to uh, peacekeeping, uh, and it may be that um, rather than seeing a confrontation in the Pacific going forward, what we might see, for example, is what Britain and the United States achieved in the Atlantic from the late 19th century into the early 20th century, which is closer cooperation and joint working. There are other uh, aspects of this, though, that... that um, uh, of this assertion about the present and the trends we read and which ones we don't, which I'd like to move on to. I'm going to park China for a moment, if I may, if that's possible, um, and to just deal with a couple of the thoughts that come up, really. One is about legal constraints. Um, we've mentioned that already. Um, it does seem that uh, there's a huge misunderstanding here about uh, the role of the international law and the law of armed conflict in future conflict. Um, it's not that there will be you know, uh, legal handcuffs put on military officers and air officers or naval officers, but actually more that there's a sort of risk aversion culture which is evolving, um, for which international law is held up as the sort of the reason why we have this risk aversion. In other words, law has been blamed for quite normal political fears about consequences and unwillingness to be engaged in certain issues. For example, I'll give you a couple of examples, uh, psyops or, or psychological operations, surveillance and targeting, none of which are illegal but which you know, tend to produce uh, politicians in a cold sweat whenever they're mentioned. Another area uh, under our heading of the about the present is the urban environment. Um, we are uh, warned uh, by the likes of David Cullum that in the future, vast, dense, vulnerable populations uh, subject to climatic and resource pressures are going to overwhelm the security forces of states uh, and that um, you know, we, are, we are in danger of facing, I say, this sort of Hobbesian or dystopian future of collapse and catastrophe. What is interesting, of course, is that if you look at the way that cities in the past and the present deal with kind of pressures like this, is they quite often seek alternative markets. In other words, if, the, if your resources are in pressure from one direction, they diversify and they continue to grow and develop. It's very rare to find cities entirely abandoned. Yes, there are historical examples, not least from ancient history. But the fear of the mob, the fear of the unknown masses lurking in the back streets of, of urban spaces can be traced right back to the, uh, to the Roman era, if not before. And there's a sort of sense of which, you know, one is suspicion about determinism about urban spaces, that we fear cities um, and we've forgotten that in ancient history and indeed in, in early modern history, Cities were the great paragons of civilization. They were literally the civitas. That's where you became civilized, no longer the barbar, the barbarian the Greeks talked about. I think we should rediscover um, the sweetness of urban life as opposed to just fearing the mob. But that takes us, of course, doesn't neatly to irregulars and proxies. And again, we hear lots expressed about the fear of um, irregular forces. Um, with the threats to um, diaspora populations, uh, expatriate communities, uh, to vulnerable embassies, vulnerable infrastructures, 
Uh, and the point, the only point I would make about that is that it's what characterises these sort of targets of these irregular forces is they're all very much non-military, and conventional military forces seem to be extraordinarily badly equipped and set up and structured to protect these very vulnerable civilian structures and civilian populations. And then finally, I should just mention, in terms of the, the present, uh, technologies, uh, because they are so... Um, so much discussed. Inter-robotic warfare, space weaponry, uh, uh, terrorists acquiring new hybrid forms of weapons of mass destruction, e-warfare, drones and UAVs doing battle with each other in the skies above the cities of the West or the world. Well, um, it does seem, doesn't it, that, that these new security environments will require new types of defence, and I'm a great advocate of perhaps there being a new kind of form of civil defence forces set up in different countries. But people forget that these new technologies are themselves subject to very traditional problems of operator morale um, or the frictional fog. How many of you in the last 12 months have had a computer problem where you've switched on the computer or it's frozen or it's crashed or it's gone wrong or it hasn't done what you want to do? So many of us experienced that. Why would it be any different in the stress of a combat environment? I suppose for me then, ending this particular assertion to say the irony for me is that, that we want this kind of security of prediction which is why we focus on things like you know, certainty and decisiveness and rapidity. Um, but actually, war is um, indecisive, often protracted, um, and it doesn't sort of fit uh, our expectation of what we want it to be like. And we seem to be constantly disappointed that it's not, not that way. Conscious of time, I'm going to just not go into these sort of four structures. I knew I wouldn't really have time for that, so I, I won't. But there are some interesting... Um, real Western concerns, which any future planner of war would need to uh, put quite high up on their list. And I don't always see in military doctrine documents, which I think is quite worrying. One is protecting economies. The Western world particularly, and the world itself at large, has been through, um, and is going through still, one of the most far-reaching recessions since the 1930s, um, certainly since the 1870s. Uh, and it's quite clear that a, a critical national infrastructure is based around its economy. Um, William Pitt once said, trade is your last entrenchment, you must defend it or perish. And I think that would be true. The new interconnectedness of global commerce surely is something that should loom large in any future war planning um, doctrine. The other one is protecting the people, which has perhaps been uh, higher on the agenda because of counterinsurgency campaigns waged by Western powers recently. Um, but I suppose there are questions about you know, how we do it in the future, um, what methods are used. How do enemies, I would say, um, get... Uh, how, how do, sorry, um, you know, Western militaries or militaries in the world get their enemies to the negotiating table? You often read uh, documents about future war that talk about the need for an effect or the need for an outcome, the need for an end state. But what's missing is how you get your opponent to come and talk to you. And yet, most wars of the 18th century, as far as I understand from my own history... Books seem to suggest to me that negotiated settlements were normal. And we've got to get that back into our understanding of what we do with future war. What do military forces do with a light footprint or a UAV-led force? Um, how do they get their opponents to the negotiating table? Um, there's also this issue of internal security, which, again, I'm not, we can pick up perhaps with our you know, discussion um, later on. But... Um, Dave Cullen has made uh, a pretty bold set of assertions. Many of you came to the talk uh, that he gave uh, last term. Um, 
His, his real concern is to acknowledge whether there, where there are continuities. Um, he seems to think that we are going to be overwhelmed by this new connectivity and by these new megacities. His big concern is that we are unable to manage, even mentally, this rate of accelerating change, uh, either economically or through large numbers of the global south um, challenging uh, the leading powers of the world. So this brings me to sort of the, the, the final segments, if you like, of this, the third and final assertion about um, the trends of war that might be identifiable from the past into the present through to the future. And I'm going to put these out literally as, as possibilities for you to, to feed back to me. First of all, um, that if we do have irregular war in urban areas, that will attempt to exploit our infrastructural vulnerability. And that infrastructural vulnerability um, might be in the forms of transport systems, it might be uh, in the forms of information management, but that does seem to be a, a quite a likely trend. And actually, it's, in a sense, it's not really futuristic at all, because if one looks back at Britain's experience in conducting operations against terrorist groups in Northern Ireland, one would be very quickly aware that the targets chosen by uh, uh, those fighters of the armed struggle, if I'm being polite about them, was usually soft targets, um, individuals. And after a period of initial popular protest in the mid-1970s, uh, a long, low-intensity, protracted campaign of terrorism against, usually, often, uh, non-military targets. In the future, we are concerned that, that militias or groups like that will be better armed with anti-aircraft weapons, surface-to-air missiles, anti-tank capabilities, chemical weapons, maybe UAVs. And people have already pointed to the fact that, that Hezbollah, as a movement, have this capability of UAV or a sort of version of it. People also start to talk about contamination and, and huge dislocation uh, of our infrastructure caused by these irregular uh, forces. Another trend uh, is... Well, I'm, I'm debating what word to use. I mean, I've attempted to use the word porosity and porousness, if you want. Uh, I've been advised that perhaps the word permeability would be more accurate from a geological point of view. But the idea of infiltration, sabotage, discrediting, the recruitment of, of diaspora populations, causing mayhem internally, for which your conventional border security and border controls have no defence, is a possibility. Two other themes uh, that I should mention here also are dispersal and depth. Um, we know that warfare is often compelled uh, dispersal for survival or concealment. Uh, and we know that since the mid-19th century, in terms of modern warfare, um, there's been greater uh, involvement of depth. Um, and I'm often happy to cite to my American colleagues, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg happens across a compass of a few miles, with a depth of a, of a few miles. By the time you get to the Second World War, we're talking about uh, entire continents uh, being sucked into uh, a conflict, a battle space, uh, China notwithstanding, um, the mobilisation of economies and ideas on a global scale. Uh, and we now know, of course, if we take it in the present, that international terrorism will be broadcast, beamed into the uh, living rooms of people around the world within hours of it taking place. Another theme will be stealth. I'm always amused by the fact there's such a lot of money and time spent on getting the right kind of digital camouflage in American military uniforms. Missing the point entirely that camouflage is about concealing yourself in your environment, not impressing other people, unless you believe the book by James Labour, who argued that uniforms are out impressing the other sex. Anyway, 
I, so, I sometimes wonder if we've really understood the full implications of what stealth means, because it makes uncomfortable reading. If military force in the future are truly stealthy, they will be amongst us all the time. And that then raises enormous questions about their legality, their legal position, and so on. Another thing would be the miniaturization of combat power, which is a sort of slightly pompous way of saying that you can kill more people with smaller devices. And that's been a trend that's been going on, as you know, for many hundreds of years. Um, now getting to the stage where we can create atomic devices in the size of a small suitcase. Or Semtex, um, a piece the size of the palm of my hand which could destroy this room and everyone in it without too much difficulty. We've also got the problem or the trend of devolution, um, which many people in the military hierarchies are trying to resist. We know that technology since um, the Second World War, if not since the First World War, has given the ability to uh, devolve command and decision-making to smaller and smaller call signs. And on the streets of Fallujah, um, individuals and small groups of four teams of four men were making their own judgments, but being able to communicate that judgment or that situation awareness with each other. That devolving of command and control seems to me to be important and would exploit at least the idea of the small unit cohesion research, which has been going on again since the 1950s. Two more, nodal systemic trends. We know that um, systems are important. Uh, ever since Admiral Mike Mullen's statement about we need a system of systems to defend ourselves. But we know that nodes are important. Uh, in the past, a node might have been a commander. You know, he might have been the key figure you try and kill off or neutralise or discredit in some way. Sun Tzu talks about the need to work out what makes your opponent commander tick, because he was a nodal point. Today, nodes are in all sorts of different systems, in vehicles, in communications and in information technology. Uh, they're all everywhere. And I think the disruption or infiltration or neutralisation of those will become more important. And finally, precision. Um, we know uh, that more precise weaponry has been a characteristic of the last 30 years in warfare, uh, if one can afford it. Um, what appears to be the challenge now is uh, acquiring your targets uh, more precisely and faster. Uh, and that will be very difficult when you talk about huge urban space and you're looking for one individual, how will you achieve that degree of surveillance and target acquisition. There are also huge opportunities which don't get mentioned uh, in any kind of conception of, of future war. Um, and that is, let me give you just a couple of examples uh, as we get towards the end here. One is that uh, we're told that the urban space is going to become a sort of haven for terrorist organisations. And there's very little you can do about them. Um, it has all the sort of resonance of Che Guevara, Carlos Malagella, you know, kind of this, this fear of these cells embedded in these cities. Well, in a more connected world, terrorists will still need safe havens. And in a more connected world, it is more likely that they will be informed upon by loyal citizens who do not want to get themselves killed in mass casualty terrorism. So actually, you could look at it the other way around. You could say more wired societies are less vulnerable to this form of warfare. I merely pose this to you as an alternative way of looking at the same problem, rather than simply all falling into line with the groupthink that cities are bad and all, all terrorism will flourish in cities. Carlos Maragalla and uh, Che Guevara, actually, uh, near the end of their lives, both admitted that actually city warfare, urban warfare, urban guerrilla warfare, if you like, was extraordinarily vulnerable. And Carlos Maragalla actually, um, despite the mini-manual for urban guerrilla warfare, later disowned the concept and said it was far too vulnerable and should not be done that way. Social media, uh, again, is something that people fear. 
a great deal, and uh, I've been um, very impressed with some individuals who've been able to say, actually, there's a great deal of benefit it can be brought in terms of surveillance and control. Uh, I was even introduced to the concept of astroturfing by some of the works in government. Ever heard of astroturfing in the social media space? Anyone know what that is? No? I, I, can't, I was really astonished by this. Apparently what happens is if you know that you've got a story coming up, which is going to be pretty bad, as far as your reputation, you and your party is concerned, what you can do is you can activate all your social media loyalists and get them to tweet, retweet, 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 endlessly, hundreds of messages, so that you actually overwhelm by mass the other person's message. Astroturfing. It's like you lay down a new surface that's so comprehensive and artificial that it's overwhelming. Well, that's astroturfing. Situational, situational awareness with new technologies, new apps in the modern language, um, seems to be very likely. Um, the spread of international uh, norms in terms of international law, law of armed conflict, uh, would might mean uh, less freedom of action for criminals and terrorist gangs than, than uh, people fear about the future. Now, there are many of these sort of things that one can do and say, gosh, look at all these uh, opportunities uh, we actually have, um, which are an alternative way of thinking about the same kind of problem. Let me conclude by these kind of thoughts. The real vulnerability, it seems to me, um, for the world, with global and regional economies, and I would like to see in any future war planning kind of thinking, that, the, that economies or real economics are part and parcel of discussions about future war. The failure, for example, of the economy of China over the next 30 to 40 years would uh, not only affect the West very badly, I think it would cause a global financial meltdown. Globally, we are interdependent, and that actually may be more of a, to use an old expression, a good thing than a bad thing. There are also huge opportunities. Rather than only fearing the pandemics of the future brought on by climate change, as occurred in certain documents I saw only four or five years ago, medical advances now are so rapid that they offer the opportunity of nipping these things in the bud. Genome sequencing, um, according to, again, some statistics by McKinsey, seemed to, a few years ago, back in the early 2000s, cost um, about $50 million and would take several years to complete. Now, we're told, can be completed in 24 hours and cost less than $1,000 each individual human genome sequence. Imagine the implications for that. We are also told that there will be you know, new amplified grievances through social media and new media. But it also seems to me that solutions are being found a lot faster as well. So what am I saying to you? What I'm saying, I suppose, in, in the conclusion of these three assertions is the world has got some significant challenges ahead. I'm not going to tell you that it hasn't. But I am concerned that our past, our enculturation of certain ideas is becoming almost a sort of form of groupthink. And we must break out of that way of thinking. We must contemplate alternatives, however absurd they may seem today, because that has been the experience of the past, and that seems to me to be the lesson, if we are being taught one, of the present and its most recent phenomenon. Now, I'm, I'm conscious I've not done any sort of great resounding one-liner conclusion the way that perhaps someone like Colin Gray would do, but, you know, I'm not into that kind of thing. I would rather leave this with a sort of an ellipse of three dots rather than a full stop, so as to offer the opportunity for you to come back at me at what I've got wrong. Well, thank you very much indeed.